As Mark said this morning, uh, what we get to have in our experience is our Father in heaven speaking to us. Um, That's what's about to happen. I don't know what uh, voices you've had in your ears uh, the last 24 hours, the last week. Um, I don't know whether it's been uh, criticism from colleagues or, or, or whatever, whether it's been your own inner voice that you've been listening to and we can get on ourselves quite a lot, can't we? And I do that. And, and sometimes the enemy whispers to us. This morning we get to hear the Father's voice to us and shut all other noises out and hear his voice to us. And uh, just to give you a heads up, this morning I think he's going to use his loud voice um, with us. Um, sometimes with, um, with Grace, uh, my little girl, uh, I use my, my quiet voice, my, my uh, it's okay, it's okay. And God, our Father, brings us things in that voice sometimes, doesn't he? Um, yesterday, I was walking along with Grace in our uh, buggy thing, and I'd not strapped her in, which was, which was bad. And uh, I was walking along, and she, before I could kind of see what had happened, she'd jumped out and she'd run, and she'd run down the road just near our house. She was almost home, and she was almost safe, and she was happy. She didn't see that there was a dangerous situation happening, and, and she took two steps off the pavement at quite a pace, and it was like the world slowed down for me, but also like it sped up because I couldn't do anything about it as some mug in a very big 4 by 4 drove extremely quickly down our residential street and I yelled with my loud voice I'm not going to do it because she'll burst into tears because that's what she did and she stopped thankfully she stopped in her tracks because her father's voice yelled at her in love and God the father wants to this morning in light of us nearly being home And in light of us thinking we're doing okay, but in light of real danger along the way, he wants to, in love, not in aggression, in love, he wants to to use his loud voice this morning. And we're going to speak about a theme that is all the way through the Bible. Uh, It's urgent, it's weighty, it's substantial, and it's for our blessing and our thriving and our good. And it's this subject, holiness, holiness. This morning, the call on our life, on my life and on on your life to live holy. Uh, Just to show I'm not making it up, just clock the first verse of our passage up. Um, This is Hebrews 12, verse 14, and we're going to be there to the end of the chapter. Uh, And it says, work at living a holy life. Uh, Other chapters, uh, other translations, excuse me, use the language strive to live a holy life, or make every effort. It's this deliberate language of exertion, of being at the gym, which is not something I ever do, Um, but but being at the gym and being on the treadmill and and, and doing the hard yards and keeping fighting and sweating and, and deliberately, consciously, actively going for it to live a holy life. Now, my guess with a modicum of uh, human empathy in me, only a little bit, is that when that verse springs up on the screen and you hear that's the theme, you, you know, it kind of doesn't give you the fuzzy feels, that verse, like some verses in the Bible do. So like God so loved the world, woo, work at living a holy life. Oh, right. It feels like the small print. So uh, free audio book. Great. Uh, if you give us your credit card details and uh, sign up for six months at 9.99. You know, life and peace and love forever with God, small print, live holy now. It feels like the bad bit. 
And I think we recoil from a verse like this, which, by the way, is, is not rare in the Bible. <laughs> if you read it, it's everywhere, this kind of idea. We recoil, I recoil from this idea for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think holiness feels very, very, very unattractive, naturally, when we think about it. Yeah, little thought experiment. Um, bad luck, I've been speaking to your work colleagues uh, about you behind your back. Um, sorry. Uh, and at that little discussion that we had, uh, we were discussing everyone in the office or everyone in your workplace, and we were defining them by their kind of main characteristics. So there was the guy who was fun, there was the guy who was uh, edgy, um, there was the, the really uh, hilarious one, there was the really hard-working one, there was the kind one. And then we came to you, and we were struggling to know what to, to describe you as. And we said, do you know what, really, particularly over the last six months, they've, aren't they just really holy? And do you notice how you would hate that <laughs> instinctively? That you would much rather be all of the other things than to be known as the holy one because it feels to us like holiness is to have all of the fun, all of the life, all of the joy wrung out of us like an old flannel and you just end up drying in the corner, tutting at all the normal people because you're gutted, holy, right? And it can feel like that. It is very important that we scrap that misunderstanding of holiness right now because... In the Bible, holiness is first and foremost, and I was going to say an attribute, the defining essence of God. Okay, It isn't primarily a description of people. That's secondary, that we're to be holy. First and foremost, God is holy. That's who he is. He's, he's holy in his love. He's holy in his justice. It's not one thing. It's not like he's loving, but he's also holy. All that he is is holiness. That's the defining essence of who God is. Holy, holy, holy. We've sung it already. The Holy One of Israel. Uh, be holy, says God, because I am holy. And so, come with me on the logic. If you are down on the idea of holiness, if you think holiness is rubbish, dull, lifeless, that reveals that you think that about God. Because God is holy. And we don't want to think that about God. Is that true about God? Is God lifeless? To become, for you to become more like God, would that make you less lively? No. God, from God, all life comes, right? Everything you've ever seen on planet Earth or the blue planet or anything, any holiday, anything you've looked at, it all comes from him. He's the heartbeat of the universe. To become like him would to become more alive. He's God bland. Now, every color, culture, tongue, nation, everything comes from him. And so for you to become like him is not to be transformed into someone dull. It's to become transformed to someone colorful and alive. Okay, is God bland? Like he breathed out the universe. He's more interesting than you, <laughs> right? Like he's got a decent CV on him. And for you to think, I'm not into being holy, is to say you'd rather be like you than like God. If it, that's a bit vague for you, Jesus of Nazareth is God in human form. And when you look at him, is he someone you feel sorry for? Because he's, he's a bit naff and a bit, a bit distant and a bit aloof. Like the guy is alive. He, he's every page of the Gospels. He's at a party. He's blessing. He's healing. He's bringing hope. He touches people who have no life and they get life. The guy is alive and well. And for you to be down on holiness is to say that you'd rather stay like you than become like Jesus. And that's really arrogant. 
isn't it? Right? So holiness is not a negative thing, it's a beautiful thing. The other reason that I think we're down on this verse, work at living a holy life, is not simply because it involves working, like we all work hard at some stuff, even the most lazy ones in the room work hard at some stuff, so it's not just that. I think it's this, the idea that, hang on a second, aren't I already holy because of Jesus, right? True? True. Yeah? It's not a trick. (laughs) Hasn't Jesus made us holy? Yes. Isn't that the whole message of Hebrews, that by the one sacrifice, Jesus once for all has made you already forever perfectly holy, right? True. Completely true. But it's not the only thing that's true. And that's where we just need to just get careful in our understanding for two minutes. Absolutely God our Father, when you became a Christian, God declared you, made you, looks at you, sees you, treats you instantly forever as if you are as holy as the Son of God himself. You know the phrase, we're clothed in Christ? You know that phrase? Uh, Now that's like everything beautiful and stunning and kind and brave and just that Jesus did is put on you and that's who God sees you as and he loves you like that instantly. And that's called in the Bible justification. God justifies us. He declares us holy. And you don't have to work for that. Praise the Lord, you don't have to work for that. Every other religion, you have to work for that. And you'll never get there. In Christianity, it's a gift of grace, holy forever. That's justification. The thing is, we normally stop there and we think that justification is the only thing that God wants to do in our life and that's not true. It gets even better. The good news for me, who is a right wally, okay, at times, a lot of the time, is that God does not simply want to declare me as holy, see me as holy, treat me as holy, love me as holy, act as if I'm holy. He actually wants to make me holy, (laughs) which is not a small print negative. That's that I, God in heaven, wants to make me and you more like the person he's declared us to be. And that process is called sanctification. So justification, from the start, we're all exactly the same, justified. Holy, says God. But in our new status, we work at holiness. We work to live out the new life. We put sin to death. We take up the fruit of the Spirit. We, and that crucially involves effort, okay? Now, God is working in you and me to grow us and sanctify us. And he's doing probably 98% of the effort on that, okay? And I, I don't know what the percentages are. It's probably 99. He's working in you. He's transforming you. He's progressing you from glory to glory. He's doing that. But he calls Christians to fight the good fight, to work hard at living a holy life. That's what this verse is about. So if you think that what I'm about to do, and I promise you we finished on time at South, so don't lose heart, Um, If you think that what I'm about to do is give you nine, yes, nine, uh, motivations to become someone who's loved by God or become someone who's seen as holy by God, you'll just be depressed at the end of this talk and you will fail. And if you want that sort of message, go to another religion. You're already seen as holy by God. But what this talk is, is nine motivations, yes, nine, and we finished on time. Nine motivations to, in light of the security of our new adoption and that we're totally in already, nine motivations not to just go, well, I'll just sin for ages till heaven then, 
but why it matters that as Christians we take up the fight for holiness. Is that okay? It's just clear that we get that distinction, otherwise this will be a little depressing. Now, nine motivations, um, and just to say, some of them are uh, very light and happy and preach well, and some of them are hard, Um, but God sees us on the pavement, running on the road, sees the four by four, and in love, he uses his loud voice. That's what's happening this morning, okay? So point number one, get serious about holiness in your life. Get serious about cutting out sin as a Christian because if you're not holy, you won't see God. Um, I said some of them are happy. Um, Not this one. Uh, Verse 14 says this, work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Uh, Fast forward, could be tomorrow, could be millions of years away, end of the world, Jesus returns. And the world is split into two groups of people at that moment. They are split into people who will be raised to be with God forever and raised to be away from God forever. And uh, the Bible at lots of different points gives us different ways of understanding how that split is decided, okay? And there's lots of things that we might instinctively say. This verse says that those who are not holy won't see God. And with the tension that that brings in a room, um, one way to alleviate it is to say, but Jesus has gifted us his holiness. Phew. But look at this verse. This verse says, work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. It's saying, unless you've got a decent amount of the holiness with which you can work for, you won't see God. Now, is this saying that our efforts and our uh, good deeds win us heaven? No, it isn't. Is it saying that they're the basis upon which we get to heaven? No, it isn't. Jesus' efforts are the efforts that get us to heaven. What this is saying is when you meet God, if there is no actual life change in you, if you've prayed a prayer when you were 10, but your life has no sense of reality of that faith in you, if there's no evidence of your holiness, uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, a pastor in America, says if there's no evidence flowing out of you that God's grace has flown into you, then this verse is meant to terrify you, actually. And some of you will have a, a, a soft conscience that's getting very oppressed right now unnecessarily because this is not talking about perfection, goodness me. Of course it isn't. This is not talking anywhere near perfection. And you don't need to, if you've got it wrong once this week, or like a million times, you don't need to unnecessarily panic, okay? Jesus has dealt with our sin. But what this is saying is if you're habitually, unrepentantly, uncaringly, fine with living in sin, you are meant to be terrified by that verse of the Bible, actually. And other talks, we'd soften that, And today we're not going to. That's meant to shake us up. Number number two. Point number two. (laughs) Number three is happy. Number two isn't. Sin damages those around you. Look at verse 15. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you corrupting many. 
You see what he's saying here? What he's saying is that Western uh, 21st century culture is wrong. Western 21st century culture preaches to you that you are merely an individual who can do what you want, and if you do what you want, that's fine, because that's you. You do you. Crack on. And that's not true, because this verse says that if we let sin grow up, it does two things. It troubles us, but we knew that already, like sin's rubbish, isn't it? You know, when you realize that, when you've sinned, and you go, that was rubbish. Troubles you, but it says here that it corrupts many. Now, we know this about public sin. Okay, um, I come up to Lucy uh, in the middle of my talk and uh, headbutt her in the face. Um, now, that's going to have corporate implications for other people, isn't it? It's going to have implications for the Mobley family. It's going to have implications for the Pitt family, not least loss of income. It's going to have implications for the church because we know that public relational sin involves other people, right? But look at the example that this verse gives. It talks about bitterness. And it says that hidden inside, of course I'm too polite to bring it out into the open, but inside I hate you. Even that sort of sin corrupts other people. Because if I go into my workplace, and at times this happens, because I'm a a bit of a wally, as I've said, and I feel a bit bitter towards other people, or I feel um, like suspicious of someone else, I go into my office, and no, I don't go, oi, I hate you, boom. What I do is I'm a little bit more defensive, a little bit more distant, a little bit more selfish, a little bit more, and actually, my hidden sin affects other people. This verse is saying, you think that you're getting away with your hidden sin. Rich, do you think that? There's no private sin (laughs) because it changes us and it affects many. So get serious about holiness. Sometimes we say some people in the world are about love and some people are about holiness, right? If you love people, cut sin out as an act of love to your family, to your church, to your colleagues. Should we do a happy one? Everybody say, yay! Yay! Number three. Holiness is choosing greater pleasure. Uh, Verse 16. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. I don't know if you know the story of Esau. Uh, 30 seconds. All you need to know, Esau is a twin brother with Jacob, and Esau is a little tiny bit older than Jacob. He arrived first, and I'm sure they had arguments about that all the time. And because he's older, in that culture, he has this thing called the birthright, okay? Because he's the oldest son, okay? So if you're here and you're an oldest son, bad luck that you lived in this culture, not theirs, because you'd have got the whole show when your dad died, okay, in this culture. So Esau has, coming soon, this, all the honor of his family, all the status, all the relational capital, all the flock, all the herds, all the money, all the food, all the people. He has everything coming to him for free, like he, did, he hasn't earned it, he was just born earlier. He didn't try to do that. He has all of that coming for free on his head for the whole of his life. And he sees his brother having some dinner and he sells all of that for some tea. And it's totally stupid, (laughs) isn't it? 
And is that not the best description of sin you've ever heard in your life? Like we have God forever. We have got the one who made everything. Everything that you're attracted to or you desire or you love or you appreciate. It was all his idea. And he has all of that in him forever. And we get to be with him forever. And what we do is we go, oh no, thanks. I'd have to wait a bit for that. No, I want to just go with my, my, my short-term hungers. And it's totally irrational because greater pleasure is available. And if the world says to you, oh, holiness means you've got to give up on pleasure, not true. It means you're waiting for God-sized, eternal pleasure instead of selling yourself for a quick fix. That's what holiness is. It's investing in God-sized, eternal pleasure forever. And it ain't stupid. It's very sensible. It's a good investment. But it means you've got to wait for a second to be face-to-face with God forever. But like, that's okay, isn't it? Don't sell your soul when eternal pleasure is available. I said it was happy. I don't think it was that happy. Number four, sin has or sin can have long-lasting consequences. Uh, Look at the Esau story, verse 17. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. It's telling the next bit of the Esau story where, like you and I do when we sin, after he'd sold his whole status and security and significance and the birthright forever for some stew, he realized two hours later he was still hungry and he went, that was really stupid. I need to go and undo that. I need to unpick what I just did. That was silly. Have you ever had those moments? And he goes back, and here's the thing, he couldn't unpick it. Now, is this verse teaching that um, if you do a really bad sin, okay, and in whatever that means, um, and in my life, if we were defining it in that way, you'd see tons, okay, through my history. If if we're saying you do a big old whopper of a sin, and you come to God, and even if you cry about it, he's going to reject you. It's not saying that. We know better than that, don't we? Like, we've heard the Bible. We know the gospel. He's not saying that. Anyone can come to God. Anyone can come back to God. David saw a woman having a bath, arranged to sexually assault her, and then killed someone to cover it up. And he comes back to God, and he asks for forgiveness. And God is that gracious that he forgives David, and David writes some of the Bible. Like, you can come back to God after anything. What this is teaching, it is good news, Gracie. What this is teaching is that even forgiven sin can have lifelong consequences. And don't be like Esau. Now, I want to give you a very rare moment of pastoral sensitivity in this otherwise loud voice talk. God does not want us now, I hope not, because it would be a long experience for me, to look backwards into life and go, oh, flip, look at all the consequences of the things I've got wrong. Oh, no, he's not wanting us to do that. We don't live life backwards as a Christian. Paul says, forgetting what's behind, pressing on to what's ahead, I go for the goal. So what this is saying is, no, 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 this is not worry about the past. This is from now on, like, don't be like Esau. (laughs) Like, think. Number five, we've been going for 23 minutes. We'll be done in less than 10 minutes. We'll see. Number five, you have 
an infinitely better relationship with God than Moses did. Yeah. Let's prove that. Uh, Verse 18 to 24 in this passage is talking about a new idea where basically what the writer does is he compares two ways of relating to God and two mountains, okay? On one side, he talks about Mount Sinai, okay, where God gave the Israelites the law, and God comes to the people of God and to Moses in particular, and he meets with them, and he comes down, and it's like the high point worship moment of the whole Old Testament, okay? It's like the river times a million for the Old Testament people of God, okay? It's a good night, and uh, he talks about that, and then he compares it with like average Christianity that the Hebrew Christians are experiencing, okay? And he talks about Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, which is a kind of a phrase for heaven or where God dwells in the New Testament. And what he wants to do is compare the two to teach the Christians something incredible. Look what he says about the first mountain, verse 18. Just picture this. He says, Christians, you've not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, for they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself, Moses, (laughs) was so frightened at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. What the writer's saying is the best moment of old covenant uh, religion was that your main guy came as close as anyone could to God and he was terrified. And that's the experience of the old covenant, that the closer you get, the more terrified it is and you, you beg no more. Now look at the Christian's experience. And uh, I don't think the Hebrew Christians were having the snazziest meetings with the best smoke machines and lights. But look at the Christian experience. No, you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. Terror. Joy. And the God who we approach is the same God as this God. (laughs) But something has happened to turn the characteristic of our encounters with God as human beings from primarily terror to joy. Now what has happened? Verse 24, you have come to Jesus the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness. He's saying God hasn't changed. It's the same God who Moses begged to get away from. You now, because of Jesus' blood, can come to, and it can be joyful because he's your father. And just as they say, God, get away, and they backed off, We now say, God, we welcome you with praise. We're bold to come near you, and it's joyful. Now, there's joy in the Old Testament, and there's fear in the New, but the the scales have switched up massively, okay? It used to be all terror, little bit of joy in the midst. Now, we fear God, same God, but we approach him with joy. Now, how is that a motivation for holiness? If Jesus has done that for you, 
Like, don't spit in his face with your life. (laughs) I'm sure there's a more profound way of saying that. But I think that'll do. Number six. You are a citizen of heaven. Get serious about holiness in your life because you belong to heaven. Look at verse 23. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. Uh, Anyone at school, do they read out a register at the start of your school lessons nowadays? Is that done? You're written on a list and you, you, you belong in that class. And so they say, Elijah Rose, and you say, here, yes, miss, all good, mate. Or, no, be respectful to your teacher. Yeah. Where are we enrolled? Now, my passport has me written down as uh, British, and that's true. That's part of my identity. That's important to me. Yours might be the same or different. But above and beyond all of that, my identity, my passport says heaven. I'm from heaven now. It says in the Bible that God has raised Christ up and he's seated us with him in heavenly places. And so even though you're like, I'm sat in Lordswood and it ain't that heavenly, your identity is so tied up with Jesus that you are in your person and in your status and in your future, you are seated in heavenly places. You belong to heaven. So how's that a motivation for holiness? If I walk into a pub in Bearwood during the World Cup and start chanting, Colombia, Colombia. It's totally weird because I'm not from there. And if we walk into life and live fleshly, ungodly lives, that's totally weird. It's just inappropriate and odd because that's not who we are. That's not who you are. Number seven, get serious about holiness Because if you reject God, you won't escape judgment. Uh, I'm not going to say anything clever about this one. Uh, I'm just going to read the next verse of the Bible twice and let you hear it. Uh, And just to say that the, (laughs) the motivation to follow God is mostly positive. God is beautiful. Jesus is stunning. Why would you not? It's amazing. Follow Jesus. Okay, the catch line to our sermon series is not Hebrews, hell is scary. Okay, it's Hebrews, Jesus is greater. But also, this verse is in the Bible. Verse 25. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who's speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Be careful. Take great care. You run in on, off the pavement onto the road. It's your father's loud voice to you. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who's speaking. For if, peop- if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. You can escape judgment, but not if you leave Jesus. Number eight, be serious about holiness because on the last day, God's kingdom 
will stand while all else crumbles away. Where are you sowing? Where are you building? What are you living for? What are you pouring your time and energy and heart and soul into? Look at verse 26, speaking about the last day. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. It's like God saying at the end of time, he's going to sweep everything up, every way of living, every way of loving, every way of looking, and turn it all into a snow globe and shake the snow globe. And everything that is not built on the kingdom of Jesus Christ will wither away forever. And anything built on the kingdom of Jesus Christ will stand forever. Any decision you made to look stupid today for Jesus will not look stupid on that day. Are you passing up uh, opportunities for relationships that you know would be ungodly because Jesus calls you to do that? That, can I just say something? That looks to the world really stupid today. It just does. It won't on that day. When you build on the kingdom of Jesus, when you sow to goodness and righteousness and look daft now, you will not look daft on the last day. It will be a very wise thing to have done. Just go with me. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Just go with it. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Come on. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand fell flat. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock and the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. Build on Jesus. Number nine. God is as holy today as ever. Why do you got to get serious about holiness? Because you don't want to look daft on the last day. Well, that's true. And because it affects other people. Well, that's true. And, um, you know, because it feels a bit rubbish. That's true. Primarily, why do you get serious about holiness as a Christian? Our God is a devouring fire, a consuming fire. He is, not he was. 
He is that God from Sinai. And Jesus has gone to the cross and won us joyful gathering with that God. But if we believe that about the nature of God, we will not be blasé about sin. We just won't. We won't say, how much sin can I get away with while still being a Christian? We'll say, oh my goodness me, my God, I want to honor you. In view of God's mercy, I offer myself as a living sacrifice. It's not, where's the line, how far can I go? It's, where's my God, how near can I get to living for you? Our God is a devouring fire. Let me pray.